0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Dr. Sandra Barrett. This is part two of our conversation, Your Cells Are Listening. Sandra Barrett is a nationally recognized speaker on mind, body, and lifestyle medicine. She's earned her PhD in biochemistry from the University of Illinois Medical School and completed postdoctoral training in immunology and hematology at the University of California Medical School. She's taught at UC Berkeley, UC San Francisco, and the California Institute of Integral Studies. Sandra Barrett's new book, Secrets of Your Cells, Awakening the Body's Inner Intelligence, explores our body's cells from perspectives both scientific and sacred, demonstrating the microscope's power for revealing the art within life. In this episode of Insights at the Edge... Sandra and I talked about how spiritual practices and lifestyle factors affect what genetic material is or is not expressed at a cellular level. We also talked about the role of belief and imagery in the healing process and the whole fascinating area of cells and sacred art. Here's my conversation, and I do think it's a wild conversation, with Dr. Sandra Barrett. Sandra, in the first part of our conversation, we talked about the part of our cells that might be listening, might be vibrating, might be a knowing part of our cells. And you described this in terms of the cytoskeleton inside the cell and how the cytoskeleton has this string-like material that vibrates. And, you know, this is the first that I had heard of this description of the knowing part of the cell being this stringed material of the cytoskeleton. And I'd love to know if there are other researchers and scientists who are confirming this view that you have.
1: Well, it... Actually, wasn't my view to start with. It was the first place I read about it was uh, actually in a Scientific American um, article by uh, Harvard scientist Donald Ingbar. And what you know, and it was one of those synchronicity moments of going to the bookstore first and discovering two magazines totally unrelated: Yoga Journal and um, Scientific American. And both of them had articles in there about something called tensegrity, which I had never heard of. Um, I One was an article by Carlos Castañeda, um, who talked about magical passes, which are physical exercises, basically, that uh, the ancient sorcerers used to change their consciousness and uh, supposedly change their bodies. Um, Ingvar uses the word tensegrity, which totally transformed how I've even thought about the cell. I had never heard of it when I studied biology. And tensegrity basically is um, a principle of design or a principle of architecture that says the forces inside uh, of a structure must be balanced with the outside forces to maintain integrity. Uh, a physical example, before I get into the cells, probably a long-winded answer, is um, Buckminster Fuller's uh, geodesic dome. In fact, he coined the term tensegrity.
0: Mm-hmm. It's
1: a very stable structure. And what what Ingbard did was um, he, from, from a cellular perspective, he was able to discover um, in the test tube that if you put cells in a plastic dish, and they stretched out, and what allows the, lets that allows them to stretch out is this fabric or the cytoskeleton and the cytoskeleton is really let's say it's really the, the probably the most complex structure in this of the cell because it's it's strings, it's tubes. people are probably very familiar, or some of the, your listeners might be familiar with the term microtubules. Um, microfilaments. So it's a a matrix of variety of thicknesses of stringy material, if you will, which um, uh, one, the microtubules part of that, we know, we've known for decades that they've been essential for directing the cell's movement. Most cells can move and go from one place to another. So that directed the shape change that has to happen as well as the movement that has happens. And then what what Ingvar did to me was phenomenal. He showed that when the cells are stretched out in the dish, um, where they have to fill the, the Petri dish, their fabric is stretched out, And that they're sending out, and what that does is then change or or trigger which genes should be expressed. So when the cells are spread out, um, the cytoskeleton is triggering the genes to reproduce. Just like if we get a cut, the cells have to stretch out to fill the space, and the cells, those and epithelial cells have to reproduce, make more copies. Then what um, Ingbar was able to show that if the cells let go of a little bit of the tension, um, that they stopped reproducing and they started maturing. So they were expressing a different gene, genetic code, in, in other words, another gene program. And if the cells... Totally let go of all of their um attachments to the dish, they would ball up and die so what's you know what's phenomenal is that if we kind of extrapolate you know what I've been saying in the book is that the cytoskeleton is the regulator of gene expression it's can mechanic mechanical um input influences which genes will be expressed. So Engbar wrote that uh, in 1998, and there have been hundreds of scientists since then who have been looking at the importance of the cytoskeleton and genetic expression, breakdowns in this fabric, if you will, in, um, cancer, some of the micro, and and one of the things we've known in sort of in the old days of cancer treatment, people were given, um, especially in leukemias, they would be given something called vincristine or vinblastine, which basically, um, kept the, the microtubules from doing their, their change and development of the, uh, growing more cells. Um, so let me see what else. Well, and what what also is interesting about to me about this whole phenomenon because I extrapolate it into you know more spiritual teachings, if you will, for cells to grow, they have to attach. They can't just grow in a ball. So they have, to, and when they are going to attach, they send out you know sticky proteins that keep them attached. Um. And uh, I remember when I had a lab and I was, ch- you know, trying to grow cells, we would have to change the plastic uh, in, the cell, uh, in the dish to make sure that the cells could actually stick. Um, and if, we, if I kind of taken it to the next place, oh, well, when the cells let go of their attachments, now they can become mature. And I'm not a Buddhist I know a little bit about Buddhism, and one of the concepts in Buddhism is, oh, well, let go of your attachments, and you will be more spiritually mature. So, you know, early on, I was thinking, oh, well, are the the cells guiding the way? Are they showing the way for some of these spiritual teachings? Where did the idea come from in the first place? Of course, psychology and spirituality and may have nothing to do with ourselves other than our perspective so let me see what else about the intelligence so so when we think about then the what cells are able to do it's affected by the matrix of the cell it is and i've been thinking since we spoke last about well you know Is it just the cell membrane that is receiving and the uh, chemicals that tell the cell what to do? Is that more important than the cytoskeleton or the innards of the cell, if you will? It's like no, they really do work in collaboration um, to be a combined intelligence, if you will.
0: there's a lot that you're saying that I want to make sure that I'm following you. So I'm going to okay. take it a little slow here. So when you talked about Carlos Castaneda and right. these tensegrity movements and exercises that you saw in Yoga Journal, help me understand the connection between those physical exercises, these tensegrity exercises, and what you're saying about the tensegrity in the cell.
1: Great question. Great question. What, what Castaneda did, and he never talks about tensegrity in the cell. He talks about these are tensegrity movements. And basically what these movements are, um, if you look at a book on magical passes or their videos, um, the body, you know, people are making changes in their postures or flexing their wrists. They're really changing the tension in their musculature. They're changing their tissues. They're changing their postures. So they're they're physically changing their bodies. And he, you know, claimed that by physically changing your body, um, you're changing consciousness. And uh, Felicitas Goodman is an anthropologist, was an anthropologist, who looked at... um, Pre-Columbian art, and she showed and she had students um, adapt the different postures in this art because she was hypothesizing that the postures that a body took influenced what state of consciousness somebody went into. and saw, so, in fact, different uh, ways of sitting or holding your hands or your head or your legs influenced um, their mind state, their spiritual state. So Castaneda is talking about basically physical postures changing a sense of what's going on in ourselves, you know, the interior. Um, this, and if we look at what the cells are, are doing, we're showing that when the cells change their shape and their tension, and they can be changed totally mechanically, um, that that changes who they become. Um, where I've leaped is, oh, then what that shows is that the practices that are age-old practices like yoga and qigong, um, shamanic dance, those are all ways that people have used for generations to change consciousness, to feel better, to create healing. And it wasn't just some esoteric property that people are using to do that. Our cells do that.
0: Okay. So, Sandra, I'm totally with you when... You talk about being in different body postures and there are different kinds of consciousness, states of consciousness, different types of sensitivities, sensibilities that are present dependent on the posture we're in. So I'm completely with you. I think what I don't yet understand is how cells change their shape and what shapes are available to cells, meaning I understand you know, the human body can sit up straight or twist or do a headstand. Right. But, but how do our cells change shapes? What shapes are available to the cells of the body?
1: Oh, great. Um, well, the one the cells I have the most experience with, I mean, besides in my imagination in the laboratory, are white blood cells. And, an exa- you know, an example, a simple example is, a white blood cell that gets rid of bacteria, the fir- our first line of defense, um, basically looks sort of like an amoeba. But when it, uh, a microbe gets into its environment or a plastic bead gets into its environment, this now amoeba, if you've seen amoeba you know on video or something like that, you see it change shape, it oozes, it goes after its prey. So cells, ha- one, are always in a state of movement. We might not see it all. And when they're moving, they're changing shape. Some will become more elongated, uh, stretched out. Uh, some will be, uh, you know, if you, look at, if you look at all the different shapes in the bot, you know, of cellular shapes, um, it's pretty phenomenal that the shape, their function dis- dictates their shape. So cells, their overall shape. So cells that are building up our skin are more like blocks. Cells that have to move through the body like the white blood cells, the neutrophils and the lymphocytes can become more oozy and amoeba-like. Red blood cells that carry the oxygen through the body look um, more like flying saucers. And if the, and another example of how a cell changes shape related to its um, health or well being. When a red and a red cell is carrying oxygen throughout the body, if it gets starved of oxygen, it starts changing its shape and putting out little um, uh, what's called spicules, little spikes all over the cell surface to be able to access more, have more cell surface to access more oxygen. So I'm always amazed at how do they know to do that? What influences these cells to, one, detect the change in their environment and influence what they look like or what they're able to do? And so many of the cells are shaping, shape-shifting when they go on to do their you know, mature action, if you will.
0: Okay, so I'm still just wanting to make sure that I'm following this line of inquiry. So I get okay. how when the human body is in different configurations, there's different kinds of consciousness associated with those different ways of posture, lying down, etc. And I get that the cells have different shapes. But what would you say would be the quote-unquote consciousness or knowing of cells depending on their shapes. I mean, you, you talked about the shape of a cell mm. that's oxygen-deprived. What would be the shape of, I don't know, could you call it a happy cell, or uh, <laughs> is there such a thing? Uh, you know, uh, I don't know. Help me here understand this.
1: A Great question. Uh, I wish I could. I wish I knew the answer to that. Are there shapes of happy cells? In our imagination, I am sure there are shapes of happy cells. And, it, you know, um, I think I mentioned last time that Stuart Hameroff and uh, Roger Penrose talked about the consciousness of a cell and the microtubules of the cell according to their, their theory is what carries consciousness. Now, the, these microtubules we know uh, w- which is phenomenal because we think if these cells are changing shape this might be part of your question why aren't we changing shape? Um and we, what happens at a this microcosmic level? I mean, we're made of trillions of cells. You know, uh, a millimeter of skin is you know a million cells. So they're numbers we can't fathom. And one of the things that is even harder for me to understand as a you know biologist is these microtubules in cells. So the regulators of intelligence, if you will, at the cellular level, some of them dismantle and rebuild every 10 minutes. So the the cells are in constant state of flux and change. And again, my extrapolation is, oh, then this does explain the quantum healing idea. Because these cells are fluid, they're not fixed in just like the genes are not fixed in time or space. The cells can change uh, the messages they're receiving and acting upon in nanoseconds. I mean, I don't understand the quantum, let alone the na n- the nano world, um, but our cells are operating in that world. Are there happy cells? Of course.
0: Now, you know, it's interesting, because as we're having this conversation, you're willing to shift, I'll use the word, quite fluidly, to use the word you introduced in talking about how quickly the cells change, this fluidity. You're willing to shift between, well, there's our imagination, and then there's what we see under the microscope. And we can talk about both in the same sentence. And I know some people are uncomfortable with that. Even some people here it sounds true, I have to say. They're like, oh, you're talking to the cellular shaman and uh I feel for whatever reason, at home, talking to the cellular shaman and switching between the worlds of imagination and the worlds of looking under a microscope. But I'm curious, what do you think about that? What do you think of this term, the cellular shaman, and this idea that we can have a conversation that blends both imagination and what's actually visibly present when we look under a microscope?
1: Well, when I first started teaching the sort of the bridge material, I was calling myself a cellular shaman because, one, I was studying with a shaman at the time and and I was struggling with um, how can I believe what my imagination is saying or my intuition, where is that information coming from? I still have a struggle with that. Like, are you making that up? I thought I was making up a lot of the cell stuff. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, where is this information coming from? But I think... In the, the Western world, anyway, we're so um, opinionated about if we can't prove it, it's not real. If we can't measure it, if we can't see it through the microscope, and I sure, sure started that way. If I can't analyze something and reproduce what I'm trying to you know, discover, um, it's meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. But if we look at, you know, centuries and centuries of indigenous people who've had their um, shamanic ways of knowing the body or knowing about healing or knowing healing plants, you know, we're beginning to see that more and more of that's important. You know, and if we're talking about consciousness, isn't consciousness about imagination, too? I mean, how do we measure consciousness? Um, You know, are we awake? Maybe that's consciousness. But, you know, I, um, my experience with imagery, uh, probably gave me more, more of a belief that the imagination works, even though it's an ancient practice. Not even though, perhaps because it's an ancient practice. Um, and the one—I'll—I'll I'll give you one example. I'll give you two examples because uh, one was when I was first starting to teach this material, I got uh, an awful rash on my arm, and I couldn't—nothing could get rid of it. Cortisone cream, changing fabric softener, changing the detergent, nothing. And um, I had been teaching imagery to kids at, at UC, UC California, and I thought, well, if you're teaching kids imagery, why don't you use it for yourself besides worrying? Um, so I closed my eyes and immediately popped up into my imagination was this little elf. He, he called himself Mortimer, and... He said he was going to clean this rash out from the inside out and it's like, "Oh, sure, go ahead." You know, I have nothing to lose, nothing else has worked because I had the rash for weeks. And uh he cleans out the rash, he tell, you know, I don't feel anything. I'm just paying attention to him. Next day, no change, but 2 days later the rash is gone. I thought, "How cool is that?" And it stayed gone for a couple of weeks until I went to meet with an oncologist colleague of mine to talk about mind, body, and imagery and healing. And he said, oh, I have a whole um, file on that, and it was called Quackery. And as soon as I got the Quackery file, the rash returned. So it was like, okay, I can use imagery to help um, remove or heal my body, and I can lose that belief. So belief is part of consciousness. I think belief is part of our imagination. I can um, lose that belief by somebody else's um, input if I think they're more of a an expert than me. You know, certainly I thought an MD has more expertise than I did uh, in healing. Uh, so... You know, and this this weekend, sort of the other true story, I was it my imagination? I'm not sure. This weekend, I got an awful, awful spider bite. It looked like it was from a brown recluse spider. And I was terrified, and my leg was swelling up, and it was getting redder and redder and painful. And um, I was putting, you know, hydrocortis, benadryl cream and stuff like that on it. And it wasn't really healing. Again, this could, an anecdotal story. It could be well, it would have healed on its own. And I was so scared because it's like, oh, is this really one of those poisonous spiders going to wipe me out? You know, um, I just meditated with on my leg and asked myself to please go there and stop the process because this was moving up my, you know. Getting towards my knee, and it was down by my ankle. I was terrified, and you know, the next day it was concentrated, you know, in one big red spot. Um, you know, so again, it gave me, it gave me a sense of managing my own health, that I could engage my imagination or my belief, or is it the placebo effect. I don't know but it it gave me more a sense of controlling what was happening in my body. Did my cells really respond to me? I don't know.
0: (laughs) Now, Sandra, I think one of the reasons that people perhaps get a little squirmy when you start talking about belief are there are so many examples when our beliefs aren't true and things don't work. And so this is pretty risky territory to say I'm just going to, you know, quote-unquote, believe that this imagery will work. I mean, how do you work without all of the disappointment when people have taken on beliefs about healing right to their grave?
1: You're asking really an important question, because there was a period of time, and it may still exist in the literature, it's mind over matter. That if you, like what you're just asking, if you believe, if you believe the right things, then, um, you're going to get better from your disease. Because that's usually when we're using belief. We want to, people want to heal their cancer. And to me, belief is just one part of the equation. What, one of the parts of the equation is, what's the great mystery have in store for us? You know, what, are, how are we supposed to leave? It's like, can we use our mind uh, in a way that oh, allows healing to happen, but the physical healing may not change? But it can be, you know, what happens at the spiritual level. So, I, you know, I know I've been angry myself at a lot of. Uh, physicians who've talked about you know you've cr- you created your disease if you believed something differently you would get rid of your disease it's like it's not that simple it, to me belief looks at part of it is it looks at our attitudes do we think we have an ability to shift um, how we're looking at something our perspective at looking at something and what do we have to learn from this I mean, the, the people I've worked with the most are people who've had cancer, and one of the frequent statements they would make was it was a gift to them because it made them reprioritize their life. Their imagery, their beliefs may not have changed their dying from cancer, and I saw too many Still die from cancer with all the things they were doing quote right, but you know what? It, what do we have to heal besides our body? Is um, our spirit, mm-hmm. and I think belief plays a big part in our spirit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I probably went round and around with that because I don't have a, I don't have a real answer of how do we not have pe- people say, feel guilty for not being able to shift their belief or hold their beliefs. And, you know, there's so many subconscious beliefs we don't even know we've got.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you, though, for just helping unpack the whole conversation around the power of belief. Now, when I was talking to you about this way that you weave together the imagination and the actual biological data, you could say, of what we can observe under a microscope. You said, well, we're talking about consciousness here, and what is consciousness but imagination? I thought that was a very interesting comment, and I wanted to tease that out. I'm not sure that most people listening may or may not agree, what is consciousness but imagination? Can you explain that, what you mean by that?
1: Well... You know, I think consciousness is really a hard word to define in the first place. To to me, consciousness embraces any activity of the mind. Uh, It embraces just being awake and going through your everyday life. It embraces a higher state of consciousness embrace when you're in a state of meditation or prayer or uh, sitting in a temple or a church with people or out in nature your consciousness uh your mind changes and to me then imagination intuition are all part of that same gestalt if you will of it's the invisible it's the immeasurable, or it's kind of immeasurable. Um, uh, it's and imagine, okay, and it's not so invisible. Sort of going back over, remembering some of the science of uh, some of the early science showing that um, imagery, which is the use of imagination, is uh, makes changes in the brain and. In in this set of experiments, they had given people radioisotopes of glucose that when you look at what's called PET scans uh, of the brain, you can see which parts of the brain are working by this radioactive um, glucose. So they would have people look at a picture in a book, and they would see which parts of the brain lit up when people were actually looking at the picture then they closed their eyes and they either remembered or imagined the picture and the same areas of the brain lit up. So to me, you know, that's also showing that imagination is real. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a state of consciousness. Um, another example of imagination being real, you know, for those who are um, like to imagine sexual experiences, their body will change. If we imagine um, being caught in traffic, or for me, for example, with a spider bite, I'm imagining dying of a spider bite, that changes our physiology. It puts you into a state of stress, anxiety, so it's real, it just we're not so much in western medicine experienced with um measuring it or talking about it. I mean, let's face it. Maybe it's only in the past 20 years mind has been included with body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was you know, in the early 90s it was still body. We weren't saying mind had anything to do with body. So, mind consciousness to me though the to, to me they're about the same thing different states of mind and consciousness.
0: Are you comfortable with being introduced Sandra Barrett, the biochemist and cellular shaman? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely.
0: Okay, let me keep going here then with okay. this conversation with okay. the first cellular shaman I've ever had the chance to speak to, <laughs> which is we were talking a little bit about gene expression, and you were saying how it's not determined that genes will get expressed through the cells, they may or may not, depending on certain factors. So, help me understand: what are the factors within the cell that determine whether genetic material is expressed or not?
1: Well, it's it's, it's a couple things. So, one of the things that influences whether which genes are expressed, if you sort of go back to, we all started as one fertilized cell with one set of you know a set of genes and that cell kept on dividing and dividing and by virtue of the location in the embryo different genes were expressed they all had the same genes but only you know the heart cell only the heart cell expresses the heart the genes necessary to build those cells and make the proteins that those cells make so and only you know and the liver has the same identical genes as the um heart but obviously some of them are turned off. We don't need the heart genes to be expressed. So one of the things we know in the normal human body location of the cells will influence which genes are expressed, which is interesting. The other thing that's becoming more uh Even more interesting from my perspective and probably from a lot of people's experience is what's called the epigenetic phenomenon. And the epigenetic phenomenon is one uh, that tells us, oh, if we eat certain foods, we change the expression of our genes. One example um, is what something called methyl donors. Uh, I don't need to get too complicated by that, but these are compounds that are found in garlic and onions. And uh, in animals, when pregnant mice were given, pre-pregnant mice were given uh, these kinds of chemicals, although they had a... Lethal gene, a gene that made them sick and made their offspring sick and fat and yellow. Um, When they were fed these chemicals, we'll say from onions, um, that even though the mamas had these strange genes and their babies had these strange genes, the babies didn't express the genes that made them fat and sick and yellow. And the baby's offsprings also had the same genes, but didn't express them. So we're learning through this very exciting field that's showing, wow, what we do in our lifestyle can actually change the expression of our genes. Mm -hmm. The genes are there, and basically what these lifestyle changes are doing is Influencing the on-off switch. Mm-hmm. Dean Ornish has done a really exciting set of studies with pe- with men with prostate cancer. He had. Um He measured some of the prostate cancer gene proteins, and then he put them on his usual way of lifestyle, you know, change your diet, group support, meditation, um, exercise. And three months later, the expression of some of those prostate cancer genes was decreased just by lifestyle change. So those, to me, it's like... There are factors, that's why it's like moving to me, it's like, that's why you we know, have the cellular shaman, that's why doing yoga or doing qigong or using sound, if all of those can impact our genes um, at the level of expression, why not use them? Mm-hmm. Uh, m- maybe it, they will keep us healthier.
0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. If you're interested in listening to previous episodes of Insights at the Edge, they're all available for free in a searchable database as part of our new Direct Access membership program. For more information, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash direct access. And now back to Insights at the Edge. So Sandra I want to ask you a question and this is based on a poetic leap and it's a poetic leap that I've made in my own mind but now we're talking uh, cellular shaman to person who makes poetic leaps and uh, just <laughs> just curious what you think about this which is that just like an individual human body is made up of trillions of cells there might be something that we could consider a type of cosmic body that is made up of human individuals, like human individuals are cells in this bigger body. And I'm curious if you think that type of leap actually has any merit when you study the way cells are and how they work together in the human body.
1: Well, I think it's an an incredible question, because if we think of, you know, one of these Sayings that say, you know, healing starts with me. So if I look at myself as a cell in the universe, whatever I'm projecting, thinking, doing influences the neighboring cells, my neighbors, my friends, my family, which impacts then their neighbors, friends, etc. So we are a cosmic cell, if you will, a, co- a cosmic universe made up of cosmic cells. In fact, the other day, a friend of mine, actually my my shaman teacher, had sent out uh, an email, and I had replied to it saying, well, we have a cosmic CIA, <laughs> or we are a cosmic CIA. I call it the cellular intelligence agencies, you know, better that CIA than the other, Um and uh, and we're cosmic with that. We influence. So so our cells in our body, hopefully in the best of all worlds, they are cooperating and they're keeping us whole and healthy. <laughs> and um, how I can influence the cosmic universe is to to be more in my heart and less reactive and. Uh, you know e- e- eating sustainably not buying foods that are pesticides is like everything each one of us does um for sustaining life influences the uh, our universe if we and, and i think if we saw that um maybe we take better care of it
0: mhm mhm Okay. Another area that I'm really interested to know some of your discoveries in has to do with cells and sacred art. And I know this is something that you've looked at a lot, how various visionary artists throughout history seem to have produced art that looks similar to what cells look like under a microscope. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that and share with us some of your discoveries that you've made.
1: Well, um, if we look at, for me, the first place where I even imagined sacred art being related to cells was seeing a medicine wheel in the southwest. I was photographing pictographs and petroglyphs. um, And it was an aha moment, seeing this Image that I know about medicine wheels that could just as easily be in an abstract picture um, of a cell, and so it triggered me to looking at other other kinds of art, like a uh, uh, the Sri Yantra. Looks like if you look at it. Uh, in fact, I've got had something going on in an art science uh, LinkedIn. Uh, discussion of looking at the Sri Yantra and the computer graphic of DNA from Robert uh, Langridge. They look pretty, a lot alike. The structure is the same. So when I started doing, you know, sort of the leap, uh, it made me wonder where did, did the art come from people really visioning inside? did they use, again, did they use their imagination? Not that 2,000 years ago, or I think the medicine wheel, the one I first saw, was 1,000 years old. Not that 1,000 years ago people were going inside and saying, oh, I'm seeing myself. They didn't have a clue. They knew they were seeing their inner universe. And did their ability to see the innards... um, get expressed in the outside world to be able to um, a lot of the art old art was to really be able to touch to this, touch into the sacred be able to f- focus on God um, and so we're going in and seeing the God within um, or the divinity or the sacred nature within and it's coming outside in our art uh, and and Another leap from around the art was probably the hardest thing for me to really be willing to hold. Was um, years ago, a new a new friends had insisted I photograph minerals related to astrology. One, I had no belief in astrology, and I thought they were nuts to ask me to do this. But since at the time I was, you know, showing slideshows to kids with cancer, I thought, okay, I'll photograph the minerals, um, and they can use it for astrology, and I'll use it for my slideshows for these kids. And when I photographed the 12 mineral salts that, you know, there's a whole long story on that. Hopefully that's the next book. Um When I photographed these 12 salts, I saw four shapes, and again, I had no belief, so I couldn't bias what I was photographing, Um, but I am someone who's been trained as a microscopist and someone who likes to categorize things, and I said, well, where is fourness? Is there any kind of quality of four in astrology? I said, oh, it's the four elements. Well, let's see what the four elements are, air, water, fire, earth. And it was shocking to me that, oh, well, the minerals associated with earth signs were all round. The minerals associated with air signs were all square. Water minerals were squiggly, and hexagons were for the fire signs. And it it was like, how is this possible? Using a microscope in, you know, 1979 or whenever I did it, photographing minerals that were given, you know, astrological meaning 300 years ago, how is it possible that they actually symbolically, um, the microscopic images match the symbology of those elements? And... um,
0: Sandra, help me out here. Just tell me what are the minerals that you photographed?
1: The minerals were the 12 mineral salts in the body, um sodium phosphate, sodium sulfate, potassium phosphate, so... um,
0: Okay, and in astrology, each one of those minerals is associated with a different astrological sign? That's part of...
1: Exactly. Okay. Somewhere probably around a thousand years ago, uh, astrologers gave, you know, what they basically said, oh, here, Saturn rules the bones. So they were looking at the different planets that they saw and attributed, um, different, you know, part, body parts to each planet. And somewhere in around the 17th century, somebody asked the human body and said there were 12 predominant salts, uh, mineral salts, and then attributed them to different parts of the body or different, um, and then different astrological signs. It was not something I ever expected to research, (laughs) but it certainly gave me. It was one of the first things that gave me pause: of where does um, this alchemical, occult language come from? This information come from? How do they know this? Um, You know. Then I, of course, went off on looking at a lot of other symbolic codes, if you will, in the micro world, um, like taste. Um, and uh
0: now, tell me what you're describing there, symbolic codes like taste? taste,
1: yeah, well, if we look at the molecules of taste if you okay i'll give you I'll give you a question if you tasted something sour, what geometric shape might you expect it to have?
0: Oh, I'd have to say, I don't really know, except I would imagine that it wouldn't be. Round and regular. It might have something sticking out or something like that.
1: Yep. And so the chemicals that are sour, like citric acid from a lemon or malic acid from a uh, unripe grape or unripe apple, they're angular. Sugar is rounded. Um, bitter is prickly. You now, bitter caffeine is prickly. Um, and Uh, You know, it's a, it's a whole language to me, a whole language. You know, it's, it's really going out there on the limb, if you will, of where do, where do our, where does our language come from? Is it rooted in our biology? Um, Carl Jung said our archetypes are rooted in our biology. Um, is our language rooted in our biology? Again, it goes back to that inner knowing. Where did the word sour come from? You know, and you that, you that you expected it to be more angular. It is. Carol Yoon wrote a wonderful book called Naming Nature, which she really goes into. Um, how do we na- you know how do we categorize and name things? And some of that universal. It moves into the subtitle of the book. It's the universal um, instinctual intelligence that we have. That you know gets can get pretty. I can make it pretty heady, so I
0: don't want to. I'm curious. So clearly, this is something you've thought and reflected on quite a lot. Is your theory that the rishis in deep meditation received or saw or knew these things about the mineral salts, uh, about the Sri Yantra diagram? And I mean, what is your theory about how oh. how is it that the Sri Yantra that was originally drawn thousands of years ago. Looks like DNA under a microscope. That's just
1: amazing. <laughs> it's, it's totally amazing. Well, they were able to allow the power of inner knowing and an inner intelligence um, guide them. We've we've moved into we dis, we have discounted that intelligence. You know, it's going back to the battle of science versus intuition or science versus imagination or science versus the shaman. Um, if we truly allow ourselves to, to know and get inside, I think we'd be much richer. Um, and um, uh, that's one of the intentions of, you know, m- m- me doing this book and me gr- being grateful that you wanted to do the book. It's like, wow! If we only if we only had an inkling of our intelligence, yeah, I can interpret it by ourselves because that's you know that's my background. But it's greater than that.
0: It still seems like in general people just aren't comfortable mixing science, poetry. Shamanism and putting it all into one stew that that's still in general, it seems, in the current cultural milieu makes a lot of people uncomfortable. I'm curious, you mentioned going out on a limb. Do you feel like you're going out on a limb, or are you comfortable out there at this point?
1: Um, uh, <laughs> I'm I, I think because I'm an elder at this point, I'm more willing to go out on a limb. But it is, you know, there's a fear of being challenged. You know, it's like, oh, could I really go back to the University of California and talk about this stuff? Well, yeah, I'm trying. I want to see if I can get programs into, you know, medical schools. Um, But I know it's, um, I'm walking a very uh, (laughs) delicate path. And it's, you know, for years I would never talk about this you know the, some of the the blending you know the cell you know the astrology stuff or what our cells can tell us you know so i know i i'm going out you know i'm sort of leaping but why not
0: i'm leaping here with you sandra and i want you to know that and i'm leaping oh thank you <laughs> no i really am and i think it's important that we stand in some of these questions and are simply open to look and see some of the kinds of correlations you're bringing forward. I mean, if the Sri Yantra really looks like DNA under a microscope, and you're telling me that it does, people have to pause and consider that. That is just yeah. amazing. Is there anything else like that yeah. from from sacred art that reflects uh. what cells look like under a microscope?
1: Well, you know, again, the, the, pe- the pictograph of I'm calling it DNA. It looks just like the spiral DNA. And if we look, you know, and if we look at, you know, again, the history of symbols, where, why, was the, why is the spiral sacred in many cultures? Well, where do we find the spiral in our bodies? First, we find it in our DNA. And, uh, yeah, we find it in galaxies and we find it in seashells and we find, you know, it's one of those ideas, as above, so below, and we find it in our DNA. Um, the other uh, thing that sort of made me, give me pause, and as long as I'm leaping, I will here too, is where did the idea for the Trinity come from? Why are there the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Why is there a three? Why is there a three in a lot of spiritual teachings? What's the threesome all about? And uh, then you look at, oh, well, what's the DNA code? It's a threesome. When we're embryos, we're three layers by three weeks. And you begin to see in biology the same symbols if you will, are revealed over and over. We have three kinds of brains, you know, three layers: the brain stem, the limbic system, and the cortex. So again, why? What? Why is it all three? Um, ancient Greek philosopher says, "It's only with three do we have completion." You know, one is just solitary two is polarized and one two and three well again there, then we go to culture one two and three abc why do we have three stoplights <laughs> three wishes where did that concept develop did it develop from our biology that's way out there i know but <laughs> it's it. You certainly gave me pause, like, oh, another aha moment.
0: <laughs> well, when you're going to leap, you might as well leap all the way, huh? Go for it. <laughs> well, Sandra, just one last question. Are programs called Insights at the Edge? And I think that you fit right in. Clearly, you're sharing Insights at the Edge. But I'm always curious to know what someone's personal edge is. And what I mean by that in your case here. With this work that you 're bringing out what 's the edge for you what 's the questions you 're asking? Where are you currently putting your attention?
1: Mm. Well, the edge for me is as as we as I get older, um, I often look at what 's my mythic self uh, and what 's my legacy and I have in the corners of my house called my mythic self the code finder. And that's my edge of will I really allow that part of me maybe comes out in fiction, um, maybe it comes out in a film, (laughs) in a DVD or a letter to my kids. (laughs) Um, What is the code finder? Uh, You know, Part of it is, my belief has always been, we're here for a purpose. And I certainly have had a very uh, strange road I've traveled. And so I think the road I've traveled isn't just for me, obviously. I wouldn't be a cellular shaman. It's what can I bring to uh, the world that makes it a better place? And as that mythic code finder, she's revealing, uh, or she's had revealed to her that humans know a lot more than we think, and we are incredible, sacred, cosmic beings if we know how to tune into that.
0: You go, code finder. That's wonderful. I love it. (laughs) I've been talking with Sandra Barrett with Sounds True. She has leaped publicly and written a new book, a new book called "Secrets of Your Cells: Discovering Your Body's Inner Intelligence." And I'm so grateful, Sandra, for this two-part conversation. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much. It's been fun.
0: SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.